0: Welcome to the Breakthrough Advisor podcast. In this podcast, we inspire advisors with ideas and pathways to break through barriers and build a thriving retirement income business. We will interview innovative technology developers, business leaders, and successful advisors, then help you organize and execute these ideas to move your business forward.
1: Hello, this is Jack Martin. I'm the uh, virtual CMO for InsureMark. Uh, we're a 39-year-old insurance annuity and asset-based long-term care distribution company. We, we have the pleasure of hosting these Breakthrough Advisor podcasts where we bring together thought leaders from our industry and people who are, who are making a difference in in the practices of advisors today to help you level up to take your business to the next level. And so uh, today we've got Dr. Wade Fowle, uh, who's going to talk to us about retirement income planning. Wade's uh, been a guest on the podcast before. He's, his commentary is always insightful. You can catch his publications on Advisor Perspectives, Think Advisor, The Wall Street Journal. Uh, Wade, you seem to be everywhere these days. So welcome to the Breakthrough Advisor podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you, Jack. It's great to be back on the show. All right.
1: So catch us up a little bit. What's been going on in in Wade Fowle's laboratory? What have you been working on these days?
0: (laughs) Well, it seems like there's a lot going on. I have been on on the podcast before talking about the retirement income styles, and that's still, we're really building that out. We're we're starting to work with some different institutional partners to bring this idea of, it's really what I view as step one of retirement planning is think about What's your style with regard to, there's so many different retirement strategies out there, so much debate and argument and disagreement and claims of conflicts (laughs) that go into what people think is the best strategy. But at the end of the day, different strategies can be viable. And and it's about understanding based on a person's preferences, what really aligns best with their, how they're wired with their brain to, to think about some of these topics. Uh, I've been doing work also in the area of of tax planning and and efficient distributions for retirement, thinking about how can we think better around when to do Roth conversions and so forth to get the most efficiency out of our assets. And and then just beyond that, it's the general trying to better understand what all needs to be done to have a a fully effective retirement plan.
1: So there's been a fair amount in, in, in the press in the last couple of weeks about people retiring now. You know and, and mm-hmm. the and the the challenges that they face and I think I saw you in an, in an article in the, in The Wall Street journal about this you know about whether you know now is a good time or whether it's a bad time uh you know what the long-term consequences is of you know having retired in January of this year and what that looks like in terms of sequencing returns and so on so what what kind of insight can you give our our uh, advisor audience about uh how to, how to position themselves what the conversations they should be having with clients about retiring now with the way markets are are, are churning.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, this has been a, a tricky year. So 2022, it, it's sequence of returns risk in action. The stock market is down, the bond market is down. And for people like me who've been concerned about something like the 4% rule of thumb to guide a retirement spending plan, the concern was based on a low interest rate environment, high stock market valuations, something that's never happened together in, in the US historical record. But the saving grace, perhaps, for all that was like why it does seem like in past years maybe the 4% rule will work out okay. But that's because partly inflation was low, and that was a saving grace. And now we're we're getting this, I think Christine Benz called it a triple whammy in one of the, the many articles now on this theme. <laughs> so there's high inflation declining stock markets, declining bond markets. If you're just holding cash, you're getting a negative like eight or 9% return in real terms and inflation adjusted terms. And so all of that is impacting retirements today, which creates a jeopardy that there's, for a long time, there's been this idea floating of like this sequence of inflation risk. If you get a high inflation environment early in retirement, that's raising the cost permanently for the rest of your retirement. Even if inflation settles down, like this year inflation is up 10%, you now have to spend 10% more for the rest of your retirement to cover that one-time inflation experience. And that's a- another challenge that makes it hard. So a lot of people, the, this idea of sequence of returns risk it's in the past maybe more of an abstract concept that doesn't always come to mind but 2022 has really brought it to the forefront. forefront. Everyone's talking about it. It's what makes retirement income different. And so it's no longer abstract and it's something that advisors need to talk about with their clients that just an investment portfolio faces new risks when trying to spend from it and to sustain a lifestyle from an investment portfolio so what you were saying
1: sequence of inflation risk so that that's really interesting to me and and a lot of thoughts came to mind as you as you were talking about that so if i'm thinking about retiring in q4 2022 or q1 2023 um, and, and I'm looking at, you know, what's it cost me to live today? There's, there's still a little bit of a bias that I have in the back of my mind, you know, based on what costs were previously. Right. So if I'm thinking, you know, it used to my, my plan last year, if I, you know, diligently went through my expenses would say a hundred thousand dollars. And now, uh, if I, if I go through my expenses diligently and not many clients do that in my experience, um, you know, now it's going to cost me $110,000. So I've got to change my, my mindset a little bit, you know, that's $110,000 for the rest of my life, as you said. So is, is that the the concept you're, you're trying to get across here or.
0: Yeah, that's the concept. And when inflation is low, I mean, this is always true, but when inflation is low, the effects are a lot, a lot smaller that if I look back and say, well, in 2019, my household spent $80,000 uh, if there's high inflation in the meantime, you can't really project your budget now at $80,000 anymore. It's gonna be more than that to have the same standard of living. And you know, a 10% inflation on that, you're now at $88,000. If you have high inflation two years in a row, yeah, that's absolutely the point that people tend to think in nominal dollars. And to the extent that they even know what they've spent, it's, they have to revise that upward to account for the rising cost of living. And there's this idea of the money illusion that people just struggle with thinking about real dollars and the impacts of inflation, real purchasing power. And that's absolutely if I'm retiring after a a brief but strong inflationary period, I may not really have calibrated my budget to the new reality of what I need to start as a base from for the next 30 years in retirement. So I'm guessing then if you were sitting down with a client today, you
1: know, step one is, you know, let's recalibrate our thinking, you know, let's, let's think about what it's really going to cost. And if I have the luxury of saying, I, I'm not going to retire now, I'm going to wait a while, then that, that may make some sense. Right.
0: Right. I mean, always your budget's going up, but you, you kind (laughs) of, when inflation is high, you need to make sure you're doing this annual re-estimation of the retirement plan to make sure you're including proper spending projections that account for the inflation experience.
1: So the advisor should be doing a reality check with with their clients to recalibrate how much is it really going to cost you going forward. So the mm-hmm. second thing is then, so, so I, I someone who retired back in 2008 I think that it's worked out okay for them, right? So, someone who's retiring now during this period, so what what what's your research say is is the the likelihood that they're going to be able to, to sustain, you know, uh, a lifetime income? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so the this first study I did that really got me interested in this whole area was I had the international data to look at. Well, how did the four percent real work with other financial market data? for 20 different countries going back to 1900. And one of the themes of US historical data is there have been market downturns, but they recover so quickly. And that if it's just a temporary downturn, you might be hit by sequence risk a little bit if you had to take some distributions, but when the market recovers really quickly, you end up being okay. And to some extent, that's what happened. Like 2008 was a very scary year but then markets recovered quick enough that it didn't end up permanently disrailing or disrupting those retirements. So it's the same sort of situation. Now, if you retired on January 1st, 2022, it's a stressful time right now. If US history repeats what it's always been doing, which is maybe 2023, the market's gonna be up 40%, then you're fine. It's just, we don't know if that's gonna happen. I I wouldn't necessarily wanna rely on something like that happening and if it doesn't happen if we have this downturn and it stays low or stays even a couple of years in a row of negative returns that's where the uh, sequence of returns risk starts to really manifest and become potentially more of a long-term concern so it's it's really too early to know what's going to happen but it's just the general point that if someone looks at the US historical data and says the 4% rule always works in hindsight it did but before the fact, before you knew what was going to happen, that wasn't as obvious. And it's the same sort of situation today. We don't know the, what's going to happen in the future, so it's it is a, a situation where maybe four percent will be fine, but we don't we can't really say that confidently at this point in time. And that's that's really the main concern I have with people who take too much comfort in looking only at U.S. historical outcomes.
1: So you alluded to you having access to the international data. So does that mean um, non-U.S. markets tended Mm -hmm. to respond more slowly, to recover more slowly? Is that what you're alluding to?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, more or less. The the, the 4% rule idea worked in U.S. data and Canadian data, but not in any other country. And there's some extreme cases, like countries that lost world wars and had hyperinflations, have really low spending numbers. And sometimes people dismiss the international data by just saying that, oh, well, yeah, of course, if you lose a world war, you're not gonna have a a comfortable retirement. But there's lots of other cases like Australia in 1970, I think was an example where kind of, Australia had really good financial market returns, but just like the US got hit by a bad sequence in the early 1970s, Australia did too. In the U.S., things recovered and the 4% rule survived. In Australia, you're looking at something more like 3% for one of those retirements. That could have just as easily have been the United States. And so that's kind of like the, the world is a giant Monte Carlo simulation, but we only get one simulated result. And we never know, <laughs> maybe we've been lucky and we've got this kind of 90th percentile good luck scenario that's been happening for us. But we, we got to just be cautious that the experience was different in other countries. It could be different in the future. We just don't really know what's going to happen. So how how should it how should we
1: be advising our clients then as we build their their retirement income plan uh w- with that in mind? I mean do do we just say Hey, let's just take all the money off the table from a risk perspective, you know, and buy a couple of annuities and, you know, let that rock on until sometime in the future. Or, you know, what's, what's a prudent way for us to think about that with, with our clients? I mean, do, mm-hmm. we, do we think about it in buckets? You know, so let's, let's create a bucket for the next three or four years and let the rest of our money play the market. Uh, you know how, how should we be thinking about this with our clients, given the markets that we're seeing today? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a great question, and ultimately this was kind of a, a motivation for the retirement income style awareness or the RISA, which is I, I'm somewhat agnostic. Like I definitely the the math of integrating insurance and investments I think is indisputable, but ultimately not everyone's comfortable with insurance. For people who have a probability-based mindset that they're fundamentally comfortable relying on the stock market to fund their retirements, uh, I'm not gonna push back too much against them. Like if that's how they're wired, okay, go ahead and and do that. Just, I I can never comfortably say that the 4% will will work fine (laughs) in these cases, but if that's what you're wired to do, by all means do it. But a lot of the population is definitely not comfortable staking their entire retirement outcomes on the success of the stock market. That's more of that safety first mindset of looking for contractual protections, whether that's with insurance uh, annuities, lifetime protected income, whether that is kind of a bucketing approach using individual bonds to cover short-term expenses, to buy time for any sort of market downturn to recover before you're forced to sell from any of the stock investments and so forth. A lot of people would be a lot more comfortable with their retirement plans if they had some sort of contractual protections behind what they're doing. And if that's your style, by all means, the math is very much in support of that being a very effective style. Don't let the uh, stock market crowd try to convince you otherwise. But if it's not your style, I mean, fine, go ahead and and do the diversified investment portfolio approach. So... um...
1: I, I think a large chunk of our audience is in agreement with you, you know, about the need uh, about using annuities uh, and insurance in, in the planning process. And, and so um, if we're thinking about that, do we, you know, what, what's your guidance? Uh, is it, you know, basic expenses, basic expenses plus something, you know, how, how should we be looking at, at, at the allocation to annuities versus uh, the investment account?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So with retirement research, we do these retirement income challenges for consumers. It's a week-long thing where we first look at their retirement style and then do a funded ratio, which is kind of a simple financial plan where we divide between longevity is kind of your basic expenses, lifestyle, more discretionary expenses, a legacy, and liquidity are the, the other potential financial goals. But then we can actually look at the funded status of So, okay, your core retirement expenses, that's your liability. How much reliable income do you already have? Social security, pensions, and so forth. And then if there's a gap, how do you want to fill that gap? So you don't have enough reliable income to meet all of your essential spending need. If you're more probability-based, you don't really care about being underfunded there. You're fine using the diversified portfolio to fill that gap. But if you're more of a a safety-first outlook... If you're more income protection, more time segmentation, you'll want to fill that gap. And you kind of have an estimate then of what will it take to ensure I have enough reliable income sources, not dependent on the stock market, to fund what I've identified as my essential spending need in retirement. And that's how you can then approach the decision of how much, if if I do think an annuity could be an attractive tool for that. How much would it take to fill that gap, and is that a reasonable portion of my asset base to devote to such a tool? so if 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 we're sitting down and we've we've done our math and we've
1: reset reality for inflation, and we've said your your basic uh, your your essential expenses are five thousand a month, then we start subtracting, you called it reliable income sources, so social security pensions, et cetera. Any gap, then we add an annuity, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: what about above and beyond that? What's the, I, I've, I've read something recently um, about how retirees tend to underspend uh, because they're concerned about outliving their assets. So, help us, help our audience understand a little bit about that idea and the role that annuities can play.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, that's, it's called the retirement consumption puzzle that when economists look at household data over time, many retirees, their asset base continues to grow throughout retirement. All economic theory says you should be spending down your assets. And and there could be a lot of issues that go into that. I think like longevity risk, longevity concerns. I'm worried about outliving my money and therefore I'm fearful to spend. I think there could be an element of the, uh, what we call like reserve assets for spending shocks. Like I'm worried about long-term care I better hold on to all my assets just in case I have to pay for a nursing home for five years. Uh, That for people who have these concerns, I'm worried about outliving my assets. I'm worried about paying for long-term care. That can be paralyzing in terms of not being comfortable spending assets and plenty of research. And so one of my colleagues at the American College, Michael Finca has done a lot of the the survey research in this area that just shows how having a protected, protected lifetime income, it's, Having a monthly paycheck that replaces the paycheck you received while working can make people feel a lot more comfortable, at least with the longevity concerns, and therefore feel more comfortable spending their assets, enjoying their retirement, not holding on to everything because they're paralyzed with, with about fear of, what if I do outlive my asset base? And when you have more reliable income, you have the capacity to be more aggressive with how you spend from your investments and so forth because it's your lifestyle is not as dependent on the stock market anymore. <laughs> Even if you your part, the market crashes and you lose all your investment assets, if you've already built that floor of protected lifetime income and have all your basics co- uh, covered, it's not a catastrophe necessarily for your retirement. And that's what can then also help give people the confidence of, I know I have my basics covered, I can go ahead and feel more comfortable spending from the other investment assets because, uh, you know, I have the risk capacity. My lifestyle is not as, as vulnerable to financial market downturns. So it, it sounds like that's a good
1: way for our uh, advisors to be talking to clients who are thinking about retirement today from the perspective that they've seen their nest egg shrink and so they can't see into the future and there's uncertainty about that and so on. And, you know, how much can we spend and so forth? So it, what I hear you saying is figure out what, how much reliable income you have first and how much you need, plug that gap, and then let the investments do what the investments are going to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Don't,
1: don't, you know, let the tail wag the dog and say, you know, I've got to manage my investments so they can throw off X amount of income. Is that what you're saying?
0: Right, right. And especially the kind of the the punchline of a lot of the research in this area is that bonds are not very effective for funding a retirement spending goal, because you don't know how long you have those bonds to last. So instead of looking at the efficient frontier for retirement income as being some sort of stock bond allocation, it's more of a stock annuity allocation. And that's what I was really saying before about You build that protected lifetime income floor with the annuities, you have the mortality credits and that longevity protection built in. And then you can be more aggressive with the remaining investment assets, because that is for more discretionary types of goals that you you can go ahead and, and enjoy your retirement more because you know that no matter what happens, you've got your basics covered. And I think a lot of the survey research in that area is reflecting how people who do have more of a safety first preference for contractual protections behind their retirement spending uh, can really flourish much better when they have the option to have that protected lifetime income.
1: So what I've heard, takeaway one is reality check on how much is going to cost based on inflation. <laughs> Get that set uh-huh. first, right? Uh, takeaway number two is think about a not a stock bond allocation, but a stock, income, annuity income allocation. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Is there a, is there a third thing that that uh, our our advisors should have on the table when they're doing this planning? How about uh, legacy? How how should they be thinking about legacy, for instance?
0: Well, a lot of people are less concerned about legacy, but when they are, yeah, that that becomes, of course, then it gets thrown into, well, if you put everything in the annuity, there's nothing for legacy, but that's not really how it works. It's when you put part of the assets into an annuity in the short run, you might leave a smaller, like if you die early, you might leave behind a smaller legacy, but still because you didn't live very long, your retirement wasn't so expensive. The beneficiaries are gonna be getting a lot of assets. When you start to get past the life expectancy, that's where the partial annuity strategy can actually help to enhance legacy. Now, legacies may be smaller no matter what happens, just because you've had a longer retirement, you've been spending for more years, but replacing some bonds with an annuity can support more legacy once you start getting past life expectancies. And, and the other kind of thing that may come up here in this sort of discussion is well, what about inflation? Doesn't inflation hurt the annuity? And I I don't think that's the case, Uh, traditional bonds, well, I mean, fixed income assets that don't grow with inflation have the same sort of problem. But when you're shifting some bonds to an annuity, that's helping to reduce how much you need to take from the investments that are left to meet the spending goal. Like just really simple, basic example. You wanna spend 4%, uh, the annuity pays out 5%. If you put half into that, you're now 3% from the remaining investments. Now your remaining investments are fully responsible at that point to cover all the inflation need. But with the way that sequence of returns risk works, by having the lower distribution rate from investments, you're better positioning them for long-term growth. And also you have the risk capacity now to actually stick with a higher stock allocation for the remaining investments. And that can lay a much stronger foundation to provide the inflation protection for the financial plan. And then if you do live beyond life expectancy, that's where you're getting more of the mortality credits covering more of the spending through the annuity. The the inflation situation will be resolved, assuming markets do okay from the investments and the annuity can help make it possible for the investments to do their job and provide the inflation protection. So it's not that the annuity provides inflation protection, but that's where people then just say, oh, that means I shouldn't use an annuity because inflation it's the annuity helps the other assets to to have a better chance to provide the inflation protection. It really unlocks
1: the potential, uh, the true potential of the investment portfolio to be able to do what what it, what it should be doing best. Mm-hmm. So yes. how about taxes? So we're sitting here, you know, we got big deficits, you know, we got lots of inflation so on. You know, it looks likely that we're going to see... More likely than not that we'll see tax increases in the future. So how should we be thinking about taxes as we sit here with respect to our retirement? I think we've talked about tax torpedoes in the past and those kinds of things uh, mm-hmm. on, on the table and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Social Security surcharge and and Roth conversion. So, you know, what 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 should my agenda look like with my client if I'm, you know, talking about uh, some, talking to someone who's getting
0: ready to retire? Mm hmm. So especially for anyone who's retiring before age 70, and especially before age 63, where the IRMA surcharges start to become relevant with Medicare at age 65, because there's a two-year look back, uh, if they don't have any income salary at that point and they're delaying social security, that can provide a great window of opportunity to generate taxable income, to do Roth conversions, to better position yourself for later, once social security begins, and this is, I mean, everyone's got a different situation. It's possible to have a few million dollars of assets, but if you're retiring in your 60s to get enough positioned into the Roth that you may not have to pay tax on 85% of your social security benefit. Now, if you're in that scenario, the IRMA surcharges are no issue because they start to kick in at higher levels. But for someone who is at a maybe at a higher income level, uh, they may be stuck paying tax on 85% of the social security benefit, but they might have opportunities to plan better around avoiding IRMA surcharges for the, the Medicare surcharge when incomes exceed certain thresholds that work effectively as a tax increase. That it's a one of those things where if you have $1 too much of income, you might be spending another $2,000 on Medicare premiums for that year. So it's it's something that you don't want to accidentally just have slightly too much income but planning ahead for that can be very effective and can help with the sustainability of assets and annuities can can play into that as well you know if it's a deferred annuity where the gains come out first maybe there's an opportunity to be realizing those gains before social security kicks in if you're talking about an immediate annuity with the exclusion ratio then that may give you less taxable income to support spending in those early years when the exclusion ratio is in effect, then you might be able to do Roth conversions. So definitely annuities can be part of the conversation as well around tax planning. And it's just about, we have to pay taxes. We just wanna do it at the lowest possible rates. And it's not just the, the tax brackets themselves, but all these other nonlinearities in the tax code related to, to social security taxation to increased Medicare surcharges, to the 3.8% net investment income tax. And to the, the whole issue of, <laughs> we have a completely different set of tax brackets for preferential income, like long-term capital gains and qualified dividends. And you can be in a situation where a dollar of ordinary income also pushes another dollar to be of long-term capital gains to be taxed at 15% instead of 0%, or at the 20% or 23.8%. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunities to engage in tax planning to navigate some of the pitfalls in the tax code.
1: So um, I, I think that's the fourth thing that that the fourth takeaway. That's awesome. So I, I feel like we've covered a lot of territory, and uh, I, I don't expect our audience will you know be able to take everything you said and go apply it. So where where where, where would you point them to get more information to learn more about the subjects that we've been talking about?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, absolutely. A couple of options there. So I I wrote the retirement planning guidebook, which is my effort to provide a truly comprehensive look at all the different important aspects of building a retirement income plan. And the the tax planning chapter is the longest chapter in the book, chapter explaining how different types of annuities work, chapter about social security claiming, long-term care planning, estate and incapacity planning and everything else. And also if advisors are looking for something deeper than just reading a book, the Retirement Income Certified Professional designation at the American college is a three course sequence that dives deep into 18 different competencies that an advisor needs to build or to at least know what needs to be considered as part of a a comprehensive retirement plan, which may involve outsourcing some decisions like the Medicare planning, but at least having the information to understand what all needs to be done to have an effective retirement plan.
1: That's fantastic. Um, as usual, super informative. I learned a lot. Thank you very much, Wade. Uh, this has been Wade Fowle, uh, the retirement researcher. Uh, he's uh, he's a great resource for all of us at InsureMark. Um, if you've got questions about retirement income planning, you need help implementing a plan, designing a plan, please feel free to reach out to one of our advisor development consultants. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we look forward to seeing you on our next Breakthrough Advisor podcast. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Breakthrough Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InsureMark. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.